Welcome to another installment of Show to View with Mike G, the show of life, the show of mezcal, the show of guitar playing, classic rock, having red hair, and so much more. It's great to be back recording new episodes. You know, I'm even adding a little bit of effects on these Zoom calls, so it sounds a little more intimate. Today is a great reintroduction for the show as I chat with Red Parker of El Buo Mezcal, one of the co-founders there. We talk about music, we talk about mezcal, we talk about community and just a few weeks ago now, we had an amazing Texas launch of Albuo, a virtual one sipping through some delicious, delicious mezcal from Matatlan. So we are going to dive into the life of Red and this amazing mezcal project. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this chat with Red Parker. Studios, is that right? Redford Reed Studios, yeah. So, because we're going to go back to St. Louis, we're going to talk about all the things, your family and everything, but this penchant for music, when did it start? Did you you come from a musical family? No, my, well, you know, not my immediate family, but my father's side, uh, according to my my mom and the stories I know and, and the ones I've met, they like to sit around and play instruments and sing songs and do that type of stuff. Yeah. But no history of professional musicians within the family. So you, is this to say, I, I never met my father. I hear stories about him. Are we in the same boat there? Oh, no, no. My, I know my father. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that known quantity, but I never met his, he, my dad had a guitar mm-hmm. and that's how it started. I found it in his closet when I was 12 or something. And it didn't have any strings on it, mm. but he, my dad played tennis and he had a bunch of tennis rackets string, you know, for these yeah. rackets. So I clipped a bunch of it and made like the same gauge and, you know, like strung this like monster guitar. What? And, and was just like trying to make sounds come out of it. You know, I had no concept of what I was doing. I just knew what it looked like. So I kind of built it, you know, rigged it the same. Yeah. And then I realized, I'm like, I need a little bit more than this. So I had a friend at school that was, a, you know, in the music band. And I was like, hey, Peter, you know, um, can you show me how to play the guitar, man? He's like, yeah, yeah. And so I started going to his house and he gave me some, you know, lessons. And the concept of tuning the guitar just blew my mind at, wow. at that time. You know, I was like, tune it. Like, what do you mean? Like, it's not ready? <laughs> no. And I'm like, you have to do this every time? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And it just became this dynamic fascination with, I think probably it began with, you know, the instrumentation and making something because yeah. I really like to produce things. And then it became much more about, oh, look what all these people do with these instruments. And I got into music uh, from that angle. And then at some point, you know, you, you mentioned the studio, like I moved to New York City, 
started a band and then we were rehearsing in the studio and one day the uh the landlord came by and was going to shut the studio down because he was angry with the guy running it uh-huh. and i said oh well you know phil this guy roy that you're talking about he left the, he, he sold the studio to this other guy ethan you know like he's long gone and he's like, I'm going to shut this place down. You know, I, I can't handle this. And I said, well, you don't have to shut it down. I'll take it over. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay. He said, you know, he's like, you a citizen? I was like, yeah. He's like, you have an ID and all that stuff? I'm like, yeah. And then come to my office this weekend. We'll do the paperwork. So that weekend I went and inherited a studio. Man. Like overnight. That's crazy. And- so, you know, so for guitars, I feel the same way about guitar. I don't know why it was so fascinating to me. But there was a single band that really made me understand how to play guitar. And I think we're about the same age. I'm 40, going to be 41 here shortly. I think you're 40. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 1980s babies, the best. You know, we are the best because we knew how to write a letter and to write an email. So we got both sides covered. (laughs) But Nirvana for me, never mind for me, because I was 11 when it came out. And you started playing 12, roughly the same age. Same time. That was... Blew, blew my mind. So was there a moment musically or a band or a record that you're like, okay, I, now I really want to get into guitar? It, well, into the, no, um, not until I heard maybe Band of Gypsies. Oh, okay. And I heard Hendrix, you know, playing in this non-pop, you know, style. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, that's a different way of playing guitar, you know. Prior to that, when I first started, yeah, Nirvana was big, Stone Temple Pilots and that kind of grunge movement like drew me in. Like yeah. Plush was the first riff that I learned. And nice. you know, <laughs> this, guy that, this guy that taught me, Peter uh, DePasco, he was uh, a classic rock guy. So he taught me Zeppelin riffs, you know, uh, Edgar Winter Band and all this type of, of kind of classic guitar stuff. And that's, so I went down that path and thought that the solo on uh, Heartbreaker 2, oh, yeah. know, the, the Living, Loving, Made, and, and, you know, that thing was just like, that blew my mind. Was there like, so being in St. Louis, so first I want to talk about that academic stuff, because I know that, that music will always follow you, but in terms of school, were you, were you into other things like math and science? And I was, yeah, I was into all of that stuff. Um, I'd say that, yeah, I'm very curious about all topics. And yeah. I went to uh, a school that offered Russian language. Wow. And so when they told me I could, they're like, okay, you have this language requirement, you know. Now it was seventh grade when we started. <clears throat> and all my friends went to Spanish, you know, and I went to Russian language with like 10 kids in the class. And I got into that, you know, I failed the first semester just got an F. I had no idea what it was, but then it became more of this challenge. Like, Hmm, like, like, could I comprehend this stuff? Yeah. And one of the blessings in disguise was that the class was so small, 10 people that we got a lot of attention. And so within the next semester, I, you know, had worked my way up to a B grade and then went through, and and learned russian and actually went on in college and and did that as a major oh really where'd you go to college were you in missouri no i went to school in uh cornell university 
And that's how I met uh, Jared Appel from hotel school who connected me ultimately with TJ Steele to do El Buo. Did you, I mean, so you, did you wrap your degree at Cornell in Russian? No, uh, in Russian and applied economics. Wow. So the economic side. So this is what I was going to ask you about it originally, but you as an entrepreneur, because a couple of the articles I read about when Buo started in 2012, is that right? Or is it 2014? Yeah. Well, yeah, this is, it's tough to say because I'm going to give you three qualifiers. TJ was down there in 07 and, and had the, that's when it hatched. Yeah. 2010 was when we got money inside the company from other people and kind of put it all in motion. And then 2012, we made our first legal sale. Okay. That's what I thought. It's been around then. But you know, so, it, it, it was in the article. They, they, it, we know this, these journeys, right? Like they yeah, started years before, especially when it comes to Mescal. But you, they called you the money guy. And yeah. Having the economics degree, does that make you the, <laughs> the money guy? That, yeah, that, that definitely made me the money guy. But um, more so than that, you know, I was doing um, an investment job. Oh. Uh, and we were really a, a hedge fund and private equity fund, but a small shop. There were six of us, you know, two guys owned it. And I was one of the four that worked with them. Mm-hmm. And I did that as a day job, you know, from my call it nine to five. And then spent all my free time trying to do music projects. So were you running the studio while you were, were you then, moonlighting? I was moonlighting big time. And then I inherited this studio and uh, that was part of the DNA that I had to, to get involved, you know, in the project. I was a trusted friend of, of Jared and TJ and him were very tight. I knew TJ and we were friends, but we weren't, you know, ready to do business just on our own. Yeah. You know, we needed that middle link to push us together and I had the experience of, of pushing paper, you know, just filing the articles of registration, all that crap, and, and documenting it, you know. So along with that, yeah, I think money follows that organization. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but when we started, you know, uh, TJ brought, uh, you know, half the money to the table through mm-hmm. his network because he had a lot of confidence in him. And, and I brought another half of the money. And we, we basically called all of our friends at the time we were 30 ish years old, mm-hmm. right? 10 years ago. Like, all right, we're going to start this Mezcal company. You know, do you want to be a part of it? And uh, by the way, don't ever expect to see the money again, but <laughs> expect to have a lot of fun doing this mm-hmm. and, and being part of something, you know? So instead of putting 10 grand in, in the stock market, which they probably should have done, you know, who knows, yeah. put it in our company and be part of it. And so they, all right, you know, and they backed us and that's when we like, you know, bought our first stainless steel tank. Yeah. And that was like kind of block number one, get the bottle. Yeah, and, and I learned, and we'll talk about the, what is ultimately like a Texas launch here in a moment. Cause we've had such a great time with you and Cabo. But I, I do wonder, because I, I wrestle with this still, 
because I have a distillery. I've got a day job. I'm still trying to write music, not necessarily make it. But I did hear, I was reading, was there a moment where music became kind of out of the picture? There's a car crash that was mentioned. Yes. That have an effect. Yeah, that's um, a huge effect and and did a very um, inopportune time. Can you tell me what happened? Oh, yeah. So um, I was in, it was 2012. We made our first sale in the state of New York in April 1. Yeah. And then on May 31st, going into June 1, that night is like right around 11 p.m. Friend of mine, uh, Tash Neal and and I, we were going home from the studio. And we were just uh, leaving Manhattan, going to Brooklyn, down Broadway. Um, I'm sorry, we were coming down Bleecker. I'm sorry, we were coming down Bleecker into the Broadway intersection, if you know it. And a couple guys were drag racing down Broadway, ran a red light and ended up T-boning the cab we were in. Jesus. So the, myself, Tash and the cab driver all, no one remembers a, a, anything from it, right? And then, you know, we had a neck surgery for the cab driver. My buddy Tash had the, um, the cranioplasty, you know, that they, take a piece of his skull out and put it back in. Yeah. Uh, and then I had just broken all my ribs, punctured my lung. So we were on the hospital for, I was there for about, I don't know, seven to 10 days. Wow. And that was at the peak too of, of when the band I was with the disco monkeys, we had just started getting some traction. We had like a Vans tour date lined up and, you know, just starting to, to crack up, uh, through the surface and then boom, it just, did you incapacitated me and I'd say that if anyone suffered a concussion, you know, they'll hopefully relate, but the, it took me a solid six months, maybe 12 months to, to get over the concussion. Yeah. You Which know, just functioning. Are some of, but I, I have not had a concussion, although maybe a minor one, as my mom the nurse said, I got hit and have the rock, whatever. But yeah. <laughs> this is a different deal. But was, was that kind of, era was it cloudy was it sad was it just difficult to understand where oh, to it was it, yeah it was it was puberty all over again is the way i describe it um but it, you know it, it it actually in the context of el Buo was a very monumental moment because again it was 2012 we had just just kind of crank the production, you know, cycle, right? We'd like made a lot, bottled it and exported it and we were selling it and they were bottling and, you know, doing the next one. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, I didn't go down for six months to Mexico because I was just incapacitated. And uh, I largely become the uh, face for the company with the family. Mm -hmm. I was spending the most time down there you know, living at, at their distillery. Um, and so we built a little bit of a, a relationship, but I didn't speak any zero Zapoteco, right? So that's out. And then very little Spanish. Anyways, I get in the cab accident and I'm going back down and I brought a bandmate of mine that's Colombian. Uh, so he spoke perfect Spanish. I'm like, you have to come with me because I, I can't like 
overload myself with translating and communicating. It's too difficult. So he came down and uh, we go to Matatlan, sit down and, and, you know, I'm clearly banged up still. Uh, and, and Alejandro, the guy that, that came with me is like, Hey man, um, they just asked me if it'd be okay if they performed some rituals on you that they do for their family. But they just want to warn you that it's not anything like you're used to. Mm-hmm. So they don't want you to freak out. And I was like, okay, um, yeah, that, that'd be great. So the family took me through this series of rituals that, that they passed down. And essentially it's, it's a cleansing, uh, you know, purpose to take the bad energy from these events and rid your body of it. You know, and, and they personified it at one point with an egg, you know, that I had in my hand and you have to throw the egg, you know, over a wall or far away. You know, in our case, we had a wall, things like this. But it was a, a very endearing moment when our business relationship pretty much faded. It was gone. You know, that wall had dropped. Yeah. And there was a bigger message that they were really trying to communicate. It's, I mean, that's... Some of the critiques about the world of mezcal is that it's so transactional and perhaps there's not really things like that going on, you know, and we'll talk about the future of mezcal too, but did that feel, did you feel relatively cleansed? Did you feel new? I felt incredibly loved and, you know, it was very much my, my speed, um, just the way I'm oriented and how I believe the healing process I'm more of a 360, anything and anything could work. Right. So I was all open to it. And, uh, the, the, I guess that I was very grateful that, that someone went like thought about this for me because I wasn't thinking about it at all. Yeah. You know, they're like, okay, you traveled down here. Here's and you know, part of the, the ritual involved, I had to go to bed at 8 PM, you know, like the sun had went down and I was in bed Yeah, and they're all out like having dinner and I can hear them. And I'm like going, this kind of sucks. Like, you know, but they're like, you need to rest and chill out. And so it's just like a lot of gratitude, like all good feelings. And it, it definitely, you know, I can tell you that from that moment forward, uh, I've had, you know, an open and uh, full uh, faith in the family. Well, I mean, to be loved, to be accepted, you know, that's one of the things that I don't think people realize about going to Oaxaca. And even the more remote, in my opinion, the more remote places you go, you are treated with such hospitably, you're treated with such respect so much concern for your well-being and it's something that people really get wrong about mexican culture in the states you know what i mean and it, that's one of the things could could this camaraderie of a society of a community happen you think as well as it can with agave i'm, I'm grateful it did that's uh, you know i don't 
I can't answer that really. I'm sorry. Then possibly, who knows? I, yeah, I, it's it is possible, and I try not to speak in you know absolutes, but there is a love and concern that is the undercurrent of agave that I have never seen in any other category. It's not tequila, not scotch. There's there's cool stuff. Don't get me wrong, you know, but it's something special here. And as everybody says, as you talked about, Steve before we start recording, you know, Mezcal finds you. Yeah. And we've talked about you spending time with the family, the conception of El Buo. But for you, what did you, do you recall the first time you had Mezcal? Oh, I do. I do. Because it was only, <laughs> I was in college with um, my roommate and his girlfriend. The three of us went out and bought the bottle with the worm in it. Ah, very good. And so, but we didn't really realize it was mezcal. We just thought it was tequila with the worm, right? And I was, whatever, 20 years old or something. And I discovered that when I was 30. And TJ was teaching me about mezcal. So I didn't know much about mezcal. I'd been to Mexico a number of times and seen the big tequila bars with 200 brands of tequilas. And right. like, wow, you know, there's so much to this. And so I started venturing out and had to Siete Leguas and I tried some, you know, the, the major brands, the Jose Cuervo Familia and all this stuff. And then the Clas Azul. And then TJ brings me um, Mezcal because he's, he just found these flavors in 2007, you know, he'd been drinking Mezcal slowly in 2009. That's when we first were started talking about the project mm -hmm. And uh, it, was, it wasn't really until 2011 when TJ and I went down to Oaxaca. We went to Pitiona mm -hmm. and uh, this, who now works with us, uh, Lorena Taranebada uh, was the, our server that night. And she blew our minds with these mezcales, you know, from all over the place. And that was the first like true mezcal moment I had when I fell down the rabbit hole mm -hmm. and it's, you know, been kind of lights out ever since. You know, I, I, at that point in time, I think I was drinking, you know, a little bit of whiskey, probably a little bit more gin, some tequila. And, you know, now I've got a pretty heavy mezcal diet, you know, yeah. Mezcal and Mexican rums at this point. Oh, yeah, that's a group really brilliant. Charanda uh, is a cool category. But, you know, here's something. I don't think it's any mistake that the person that orchestrates a big band is called a maestro. And I don't think it's a mistake that mezcaleros, mezcaleras are called maestro, maestro. Yeah. And, how, so you as a musical person, because the only way I can articulate tasting notes is if I talk about music, honestly, or colors, but that, that's all based yeah. on a triad. How do you feel about music and that creative component and mezcal? Do you feel they're very, very related? I, yes, I think they're, they're very much related, uh, especially as I think about the variety of mezcaleros I've seen. Um, you know, I'm going to say that we're kind of confined to the scale, right? Like we've mm -hmm. agreed on the classical temperament and stuff like this. That, so 
Thank you. That is a really, really good point. And I, I never think about that. We're in A minor, guys. So yeah, you work in A minor, right? Well, there's, it's like, you know, there's, you know, whatever, 12, 12 steps or, you know, however many, every, I don't even know, but the seven whole notes in the major scale or something. But you go to like, you know, Indian music and they got the pentatonic. And mm-hmm. I think you find both those things in mezcal and, and everything else in between. So it reminds me of this wide swath of technique and artistry. Mm-hmm. And I've met mezcaleros that are more formulaic, you know, and, and appear to take notes and, you know, and then I've met other mezcaleros that are more of that, oh, you know, this kind of rolled down the hill and it looked like it was ready. So I made it and uh, <laughs> I cooked it for two weeks just because, I don't know, I kind of forgot about it. And, you know, just kind of went off the whim yeah. Both delicious mezcals, you know, and there's that, like you said, the maestros that they're conducting the orchestra, you know, and yeah. Well, there's, you know, the, when you think of structure, maybe you think of like Yangui Malmsteen or John Petrucci, sure. yeah. these like super technical guitar players. But Very then when you think about just feeling it. Elliot Smith just feels it, feels all of it, you know. And I, I love that that there are both of those kinds of approaches to mezcal. And I do want to ask you, so when it comes to Buo, which to me, again, feels like I use Tom Petty a little bit, but this is hollow notes for me. Okay. Cause it's, it's, it's accessible, but still uh-huh. kind of interesting. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Cause hollow notes, there were some damn fine harmonies and chord progression yeah. stuff. But for you, if you could, if you could use a band to talk about Buo, and I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's there one that comes to mind. Do you think? Well, let's see here. Hmm. You know, the P-Funk just hit me in the head, but that might have just been because <laughs> the, the mezcal just hit and I got the pepper at the end, you know, oh, yeah. spice to it. Uh, let me come back to that. No one hit me right off the, the head, you know. I just uh, feel it's, like it's, you, you talk to, you think you use the word accessible. And I think these are all pop hits. You know what I mean? I, I don't know that they go too dark or too sad and they're maybe leaning on the happy side, but this is, these are all really interesting things and elements to them that's gone. And so, cause I'm drinking the Tepestate now, which is, you know, the old one. <laughs> that, yeah, that plant seen some shit, you know? Yeah. It, the, that's what actually I started thinking about was which band could actually transition from so many different genres Oh, you know, and then like the like Steely Dan popped into my head is these guys that like, but they're too studio driven, right, right. right. And the Jimenez Mendez family is there; they have a really like uh, overwhelming grasp of fundamentals. Mm-hmm. You know, they do them well, and they know how to bend them a little bit. Um. So I'm going to think about that just more from the genre standpoint, because I think the Tepestate and then the Arroqueños and these different things they do and the Capone, which uh, I think you're drinking now is that's something that Octavio has loved. And, and I think in my opinion is his favorite mezcal. He won't ever tell you he has a favorite. He's just like, this one's my favorite, you know, but he loves this Capone and he calls it organico. I don't know why, but he does. <laughs> and, and that's a totally different, you know, hit. It, it, it is. It's, it's crazy. You know, and so 
I, I'm really, I'm so pleased with how, I don't think anyone's probably uttered these words together, but I'm pleased with quarantine, <laughs> that, 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 because it's allowed people to unite over education, unite about their passions, because virtual things remove all barriers to communicate. And we, I think we could call it the official Texas launch, I guess, last week. You know, we had Gabriel doing tastings and you were present as well. And I got to tell you, the people of Texas, which I do not represent them on the whole, I'm just kind of a spokesman here, but they <laughs> fucking love this stuff. They love Buo, man. Oh, they, they were great. And they know their mezcals. They were an impressive group, you know, yeah. really pointed questions. And it was, it, it was a really interesting in that discussion and in thinking about today, you know, just preparation, I, I was want to make a comment about, uh, you know, how, how it all unfolded because I think the, the group was asking a little bit about, you know, how we batch in the yeah. size and, you know, it's confusing when you see it, especially, and we have uh, need, need to articulate some of the, fabric that weaves the you know numbers together and i was thinking back to when we started you know and i came from this background uh you know this having this music studio and also having an investment uh, you know mindset and tj was coming from the chef world and so he was like we got to put it in stainless steel that's what i want to do the glass is, is, is great, you know, but it's porous. And so there's stuff that happens. And so, and I said, all right, well, I called this, we found the glass company, Pavisa, right? And they said, here's the glass, you know, you can get, you can get this shape, right? It's like, sweet, this, we love this shape. It looks like a giant flask, really cool. It can work with the owl and this. So, and then they said minimum orders, you know, 10,000. Yeah. I said, okay. Well, why don't you make it thirteen thousand bottles, and we're going to buy ten thousand liters of mezcal. So that's how we started. That was the mindset, and at this point, you know, I, we didn't have, I didn't have the understanding at all that that type of container was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, but the family told me they were loving it because they're like. We wanted, yeah, we'll, we'll sell you 10,000. Yeah, you betcha. No problem, sir. You know, sign the paper. And so then we went to get stainless steel tanks. And that's when the guy's like, no, no 10,000 can't do it. You know, 5,000 I can do. And then we did the 5,000. And then uh, we, we'd done one turn of 10,000 liters, right? And it took whatever it was, you know, like two years or something just to deplete it. And, and the whole turn was real slow. And then Elsa came back, the, you know, the matriarch, and she's like, we're going to do 5,000 liters because that's the size of the tank. And, and that's where, why I will do it that way. But if you get tanks, and again, get them smaller. So then we went down the thing and tried to get the 200 liter, 500 liter, and it was inordinately expensive and, and difficult for these guys. They didn't really want to make a tank that size. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up with 1,000 liters and 2,000 liters. So the Nesipadine, oh, sorry, good. Oh, yeah. And I was going to say, at, at this point, we keep going back and, you know, in town talking to, to our source. And that's one of our 
um, kind of brainstorm things. It's like, what do we, do we want the tank stainless steel? Do we want more glass? Which way do we want to go now? And it, it's a topic of discussion. Well, the brand seems to keep evolving. You know, we have a sample of the previous Espadine, which is in the clear bottle, but now you've got this nice painted black kind of finish on it, which is just really lovely. But where did you guys arrive on that decision aesthetically? So the, yeah, the original product was the, the clear glass and the design was done by Thomas Hooper and he did it using a digital, you know, art. So he mirrored the image and it had this really nice symmetry and it was the Espadine product. And then we said, Hey, we, we want to bring in the, the quiche and the Tobolas and all this other mezcal the family's making, but this is like, you know, more expensive juice. Mm. It's, more handmade, you know, like it's not to say more handmade, but we wanted to show it was, it was more handmade. So we decided to, we'd ask Thomas Hooper to draw the owl by hand. Oh, so then he just did a, a hand drawing on the, on the black bottle. And the way we ended up with the black glass was simply by telling the uh, Pavisa like, Hey, we want to do a higher end product, you know, and we're going to have uh, this similar shape owl. And then they're like, oh, well, why don't you just use the same bottle and maybe we'll do it in, in, a, in a different glass. Yeah. A red, black. And so we went through, we got some shiny black bottles. Um, something that's neat that TJ has at Claro, the restaurant, is a couple of the, the prototype bottles, you know, where they sent us like a neon green, shiny black they sent us a black owl on a black bottle. You know, we've done a lot of iterations and much like the story about, you know, the containers and kind of the batch size. Um, I think it was Leslie that, that hit the nail on the head. Like, you know, you make the most of what you have to work with mm -hmm. and, and then you evolve from there. And that's something that really I think is neat about Mezcal given the size is that brands can be nimble. Yeah. You know, we're not diverting 2 million liters of, of, you know, whiskey and barrels from three to years down to one year, you know, all this stuff. Do you, you know, one of the, to that point, sorry, well, this is good because when I release this, no one's going to be able to see what I'm doing. So I can catch flies and, <laughs> and that'll be, because they always, they love mezcal. You notice that? Because the sweetness of it, you know, I could have whiskey out here. They wouldn't, they probably wouldn't even touch it. But so, go ahead. I want to just talk about that for a moment. I went to Norway and found a bottle of Del Maguey in a Mexican restaurant and ended up with a fruit fly somehow. I like it. It just <laughs> blew my mind. The fruit fly is fine, mezcal. It, you're, I appreciate the observation. But, you know, that might be the only instance in which mezcal does not find you. The, the fruit fly is <laughs> by, by mezcal. But, you know, one of the things is that, you know, we, we sit through four of the marks, incredible diversity, but still, you know, up to line drive, really tight flavors and things. But obviously this category is growing. You know, I think the number of marks, and maybe Gabo said this, but I've looked at the TTP and stuff. So we're, we're talking well over 300 marks of mezcal now. You oh, know? yeah. And it's, it's growing year to year, which I'm not sure I have a problem with. But do you see any stress? Do you see any pressure? as this category keeps growing? 
that is the short answer is yes, I can see pressures. Um, I can see relief as well. Yep. And uh, there are a number of different things we could talk about um, within this context, you know, because we're touching on sustainability. In a sense, sure. I mean, there's also marketing irresponsibility too and transparency, but and, and big yes, question. something I, I've thought a lot about personally is, is just trying to fast forward some of the CRM, you know, implications, you know, I guess I'm not even sure what year it was 2016 or 17 when we did the, the new gnome, mm-hmm. did the artisanal ancestral stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now we're a few years into that and, you know, it's very few marks that I've seen that have ancestral that, that much I know mm-hmm. um, looks like most are artisanals. And so, as, as we've gone through that process, I think that we've also seen a rise in destilados in the marketplace. Absolutely. And, and, and that's great too. And so in the context of, of pressures, um, I, I largely think the pressure is on the Mexican government to figure out what they want from this in some ways. I mean, the CRM is this quasi government quasi private entity mm-hmm. um you know they have an example with the crt and you, you can case study that but i'm still fascinated that of the you know 32 states it seems like pretty much all of them make distillates you know and now we started with this mezcal denomination and it keeps growing in size mm-hmm. um i don't i see Good. From, that, from, from, that, from that standpoint, I think that that's one of the releases and, and relieves pressure, you know, that if the world decides that they need to drink more mezcal, that's fine. You know, there's, I think, plenty of capacity to do it if we start utilizing, you know, places other than uh, Matatlan, Miwatlan, and, and the, you know, Santa Cantarina and all these, you know, hotbeds. Yeah. Well, you know, production. The Rongo's right for the business, as I hear. A lot of and it's a different style and a different kind of thing. But you know, I wanna, you know, one of the things I think is kind of interesting is we, so we did this batch pick with Netta, and we're talking about doing some stuff with y'all for Texas. So we have these kind of cool one-off things. Cause that's, you know, that's what that's like those live bootleg recordings, you know what I mean? And you I know like, exactly what it is. I've got, you know, if, if it's the plastic bottle, we're ahead of the game. You, you got it. <laughs> but one of the things that was interesting is our, the first, which I will still say is monumental for Texas and Gary and, and fans of Netscon, but we did a Netta pick, you know, and that sold out within a couple of days, which is crazy. But nowhere on the bottle does it say Netscon. However, the way in which people were talking about it was Netscon. So for you, how do you feel about, because you're out there selling and you guys are expanding all the time, of course, just recently into Texas, but consumers, they're, do you feel like they're pretty bright that they want to know, they want to bring mezcal into their life? That's a generally. Mm, and it's, I mean, shoot me straight, I, I, you know? Yeah, no, generally speaking, it's, it's kind of a loaded question. So I'm going to bifurcate it. Like it, it, most of the events I go to, it definitely feels that way. It's overwhelming 
the curiosity and engagement that I get from people, right? Um, but this is, you know, the they know I'm a Mezcal guy or I'm on the Zoom with you. And it's, you know, we just did a charity thing where, you know, we did a Zoom session with people that, you know, we'd never met them before. They're not industry people. And they were much more like, you know, when they kind of crack the first bottle and smell it and they're, oh, oh, that's like, wow, holy cow, that's, what is this, rocket fuel? Yeah. You know, these are people that don't drink spirits that often. Um, so I, I think that, that the average customer right now, you know, in say a liquor store, I think it is aware of Mezcal, but not necessarily certain that they want to investigate it just yet. Right. And I've done a lot of in-store tastings and, and the same thing, like in certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn, it seems like everyone wants to know about it. And other stores, you know, some in Manhattan, people aren't even remotely curious as to what it is. Yeah. We use that word hotbed, right? Matatlan is a hotbed. Mm-hmm. Austin's a hotbed. Austin's a hotbed. hotbed. Big time. And, and Texas is assuredly becoming a larger hotbed. So, so I just am I'm very optimistic that this thing will grow and people's that they'll ask the questions because all of a sudden they'll have that curiosity, you know. And but I, I've got a couple other questions for you, which I think it's interesting, and I know you have amazing allegiance to the family, and these marks are all very interesting and different you know that ensemble for instance it's got a totally different texture it's 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 crazy that the blending of karwinski and americana is just it's really genius i don't think this is the business model for y'all but is there ever a consideration to work with other families or work outside of oaxaca have you guys thought about that yes yes we've had that discussion um a number of times you know since we started uh, the, I think, general feeling that uh, the family and, and the Albuo team and, and, you know, owners and all, all of us feel is nothing seems to be broken, so let's not fix anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so what we have done, you know, a little bit is branch out into uh, doing, you know, more agaves and, and trying to get to this um, maybe new evolution of El Buo in the future. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about doing smaller batch runs. We love to do that. And, and we're trying to find uh, a manufacturer that can work with us. You know, our current manufacturing partner is, is built for, for volume. So getting a 400 mm-hmm. bottle run is, you know, not happening. Yeah. So uh, from, uh, does that give you? Yeah. I mean, that gives me a good sense of it. If it's broke, you know, don't think I, I get that for sure. We, we talked about it, you know, and we got really lucky, you know, if you, if to reiterate the, the story, I think you are aware, but just to, so we start out with, with Elsa and Octavio. I remember, I remember having this, kind of crisis of conscious moment because I was down there when we got all the glass delivered, you know, all like 13,000 bottles showed up to this Oaxacan <laughs> Palenque. And like, we couldn't even, 
you know, sit in the salon anymore. It was like filled with boxes and they like, you know, just took over their house. Mm -hmm. And it, it, so we had some success and then uh, we ended up building uh, a bodega, a warehouse to kind of store all this stuff, you know, and the way we got over that was a leap of faith, uh, you know, and, and moment again of trust was we fronted them the money for uh, a, another chunk of production and they, you know, built it up and, and did it on their own. So we got to kind of bankroll it mm -hmm. for them. But uh, then they built another, a second Palenque, you know, at their youngest son's house. And then they built a third one at their daughter's house. And then we just completed the fourth one at the oldest son's. Uh, it's not his house, but it's his facility. Yeah. So the first, you know, dedicated Mezcal Fabrica versus the... Um, live work situation. And I think it was largely done, you know, because the business has uh, established itself. So we have confidence that, all right, this makes sense. Um, and so we, we contemplated working with other families and we inherited them. And uh, there's a, a gentleman at, at the glass company, Pavisa, and he says, he's told me over the years, he said, it's really simple. You just need more kids in the family. <laughs> You know, yeah. That, that's how you keep this up. So, and you know, there's. We'll see what happens, but if if we do work with another family or producer, it will be an organic um, happening. It, it's not something we're searching for. Yeah, but we're open to the idea, and if the family brings it to us, then we'll truly consider it. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I mean, again, it's the, the trust, the allegiance that you've built. And so I've got two questions left for you. You know, the next, when, when we had this tasting, Gabo had mentioned there's some kind of interesting ensembles, you know, because what's available is not always the same. Coyote, for instance, it's, it's not yeah. really all that available all the time. But what's next for Buol? I know that there, you just begin to dip your feet in, the, the water for launching the brand Texas being a massive market, but is there yeah. another market or new bottles that are coming out? Well, the, the new market um, is definitely Texas. You know, I'd say that our focus will just be going deeper, mm -hmm. you know, in, in terms of relationships and we will do our best to navigate and support, you know, the industry as a whole, um, you know, in the, in the near term, meaning just 2021. Um, so we're just going to focus on, on taking care of, you know, where we are and Texas is our new entrance. So we'll build there. Uh, in terms of the ensembles, uh, we don't have anything that's necessarily lined up to bring in, but the family has a, a few different ensembles. One of them is a five agave, mm. um, Banger, but we have to get it lab tested. It's I think it's Javali, Espadine, Tepestate, uh, Eroqueño, and Quiche. And that's I mean that's it. That's the Sergeant Peppers of ensembles. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the that's what's really neat when you visit um, you know the Donny Sack Distillery is that you know given the four palenques now with and just one family unit when you go to Elsa's tasting room. She sometimes has, you know, 14, 22. It's not quite Lalo crazy, but it's, it's pretty deep. Um, 
I, I do know that we have some uh, tovala that we're going to come out with that mm-hmm. will be uh, more of a pure line tovala. We have a tovala espadine blend, but this won't be just a pure tovala uh, that we come out with. And uh, behind uh, the Havali we have out now is our second turn on Havali. We have a third turn coming out. Oh, wow. Uh, we have a Sierra Negra that we're optimistic, you know, we'll pass the test and we'll get that into marketplace. Um, we do have a Mexicano that's lab approved. So we, we just are waiting on glassware for that one to bottle and then send up. That one's just resting in the tank right now. Wow. Um, and then, like I said, the ensembles, there's a good chunk of them. Elsa in particular usually has anywhere from three to four ensembles. So I just came back with a quiche barrel. Then I came back with a, a quiche at Okeño, which was, it was like vanilla birthday cake or something. It, oh, wow. it disappeared really quick. <laughs> and, and then, then I had a javali, um, tepestate and coyote. Wow. Which was just a bizarre group. And I, I do want to say that like, we'll go down to Oaxaca to visit the family, TJ and I, um, over the years. And we just be, you know, they'd say, Oh, what kind of like kind of mezcals, you know, are you guys drinking or what are you thinking about? And we'll just start throwing out anything we tried, you know, like, Oh, well, we really like these, um, at Ocanos and we think the Sierra Negra was pretty good. And then two years later, you know, you go back and they're like, Hey, we got some Sierra Negra for you. And you're like, Oh, wow. Like you do. And they're like, yeah, you told us a couple of years ago you wanted it. And you kind of scratch your head and you're like, yeah. And then you're like, this is delicious. This is like, so there's a lot of that ebb and flow where yeah. we'll kind of plant seeds. And then when someone comes by one of, you know, their network of Megueros, they'll, you know, pick up some of these other varietals and we get a chance to bring them in. Um, and there's this, uh, we have another product that, that has been, a very challenging thing just because we're, we're dealing with logistics. We've been waiting for Pavisa to make us the bottles um, for a long time, but we have an Añejo Mezcal <laughs> and we don't necessarily aspire to make Añejos, but this one was a six year age Añejo that Octavio had. The dad had it. We never knew he had it. And one day he just says, Hey, taste this Añejos. Oh, this is, wow, this is delicious tastes like a cognac almost Mm. and then he's like yeah do you want to buy some and we're like no no like like this barrel we're not going to buy your only barrel man like that's we don't want to do that we're we're good friends and you love it keep it and he's like no no no. i have i've got 10 barrels you're like (laughs) oh okay and so then yeah and then elsa kind of looked at us she's like yeah you should buy it you know and so we bought this in yeho and that will be, a, it's just more of a fun uh, project that Octavio had. Yeah. And it's small. This one's going to be really small batch uh, for us, you know, well under a thousand liters. But it's for someone that, you know, is not necessarily an agave purist, right? But you just want to kind of have this, uh, what would you call it? You know, novelty mezcal. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it, the ability for uh, dipping into new states, dipping into new barrel resting. I mean, the, the, it's an untapped horizon and a frontier, rather, for, for Mezcal. 
So I got one question left for you, and I'm going to go back to music, of course, right? Yes. So I'm now I'm moving on. I'm almost doing a flight as we're talking, Brad. This is great. I have again, I have these bottles all within reach, which is that's a hell of a privilege, I'll tell you that. But so I'm drinking the, the ensemble now, which again is really, really nice blend of Americano and Carbonski. But let's say you're sipping this mezcal with any musician living or deceased in any place that you want to, who might you want to sit down and have a drink with? Frank Zappa. Oh, yes. Frank Zappa. That's the, it's brilliant. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. And, uh, you know, you know, Tomas Estes from Tequila Ocho. I think everybody. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. From Tequila. I'm like, I'm like, he, yeah. I thought he was like a Frank Zappa type. I'm like, no, I don't know that artist. He, like, no, he, he regaled me of a tale of doing drugs while seeing Frank Zappa in the seventies in Amsterdam or something. Wow. And so I'm just like, this is all coming together. Right. This is all coming together, man. I, I really want to thank you one for taking the time out, but helping people feel together, helping people feel united when we are divided in so many other ways, but one state, one nation under agave, I don't think that's so bad. And we really enjoyed yeah. both stuff and you and Cabo. So I, I can't wait to see what you're up to next, but it's really been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking that time out. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Mike, hopefully we can, uh, you know, make one of those pizza tapes over, <laughs> over a bottle of Ensemble, you know, with, with some uh, noisemakers around. And I don't know if you're aware, but uh, Don Isak was also a musician as well as a mescalero. Oh, no way. Yeah. So in, in many ways, he was, you know, doubly doomed at the time, you know, in, in the culture. But thanks again for everything you're doing and to everyone listening of course, man. But we, we need to hear these tales. And I have been now I'm really committed to making sure we can connect even further because I don't know how much longer I'm going to have to keep drinking in front of a camera. Red. I'm getting used to it, though. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> little by little. So there we have it. Red Parker, one of the co-founders of El Bua Mezcal. You know, I'm going to tell you this. I know much of the mezcal we drink from Oaxaca comes out of Santiago Matatlan, and I'm not always really excited about it, but some of the stuff they're doing at Bua is it's really interesting. It's quite good, and I do respect the watering down with spring water rather than using colas and the kind of tight profile of these mezcales. I think it's really good, and it's great to talk about music with Red. You know, it's a great team over there, and I really appreciate the dedication to the family. You know, and so again, you know, amazing chatting with him, but I also want to thank everybody for staying tuned in. This has been a tough time for everybody, and I absolutely understand loss. I understand not having things be the way that you want them to be. But I'm going to try to keep bringing these voices into the mix with the podcast. You know, reach out on Instagram, reach out on Facebook, all of this stuff. I'm here for y'all, and I know you're here for me too. There's a great community. So thanks, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter how many songs you're recording for your upcoming record in 20 is probably too many, or how much Sotol you're cooking in a water immersion system in the kitchen right now, please keep dancing.